Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul calls the church to abandon the seeming realities attached to wisdom, rhetoric, and law, and calls them to build on a singular foundation, the one true foundation, he calls it, which is Christ. And while we might speak of two kingdoms or even two sorts of foundations that Paul makes it clear, yes, but the choice is between a foundation or kingdom, which is a nullity or a nothing, and that which has ultimate reality, the foundation of Christ. The cultures, civilizations, nations, tribes by which we are surrounded are not an adequate foundation, but neither are the various denominations or or splits. And of course, this is the point that Paul is making, that it is not enough to say I am of Paul or Apollos or Peter, or even to say I simply follow Christ, but we could stretch that out, that it's not enough to say I'm Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox. That what is important is how we build on the singular foundation of Christ in these human divisions, these human constructs, in some way are a nullity, in some way they do not matter, that seems to be the argument. And so Paul in verse 10 says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it, but let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, haste, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So the Corinthians have become Christians, but the problem is they're not living consistently with their calling. They're not building on the foundation of Christ, but they're divisive. They're continuing to build as if on another foundation, perhaps that characterized by rhetoric, wisdom of this world, philosophy, or law. And so that would be a complete futility. Christ himself warned it is not enough to simply hear, but one must act according to what he has heard. In Luke 6.49, the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who has built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So our tendency may be to cling to the rhetoric, the wisdom, the reason, or simply the cities of man, the nation, the American way. But this is not an adequate foundation. It does not constitute an identity. He's already said that the rulers of this age, as at Babel, imagine there is perhaps a unified culture, a unified wisdom, and they would build this unified wisdom on a shared language, a shared rhetoric, law, and philosophy in Paul's explanation. And so people tend to assume that their shared world is a first-order reality. Paul explains that the logos of the cross nullifies these things considered absolute in 128. 
and makes way then for a new kind of people, a new social order, the church, and that's what Corinthians is arguing for, is you're the body of Christ, now be that. He's attempting to get the Corinthians to build on the singular foundation and in building to use lasting material. And so this is not a parallel kingdom, an alternative reality, as in Luther's notion of the two kingdoms. God is doing with his left hand on earth while his right hand is busy with the spiritual realm in the heavenly kingdom. He talks about it as if it's two separate things. Uh, we might assign reality to the White House or to the kingdoms of this world in some parallel way or even an alternative foundation, which is the logic by which some might say, well, in the secular world or in the worlds of this kingdom, of this world's kingdoms, we act one way, we follow one sort of ethics or have one sort of goal, and in the church we act another way. We have a different sort of ethics and a different sort of goal. And so this is what Paul is trying to prevent. Some might say, I will, uh, I will follow sociology, psychology, the, the human wisdom of this world, which is not to dismiss this wisdom, but the point is it's not self-grounding. It does not constitute its own foundation. So the image Jesus uses, you know, building on the sand, it may be that you, you can do one of two things. You can build a, a nice with, with nice material on a faulty foundation, or you can f even build on the one true foundation with poor material. The writer of Hebrews describes you know, this, uh, that Abraham was in search of the city whose architect and builder is God. And the, the writers of the New Testament, Paul says, we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and you then are part of the whole building being fitted together. So we have to do both things. We have to grow, he says, into a holy temple in the Lord. You are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This building project is in process. It's not complete. If we miss the foundation, of course, we miss Christ. But what Paul is warning about, it's possible to get the foundation right, but in fact to misunderstand how to build. And so I think the tragedy unfolding in the American church, and it is a reversible tragedy, is that it is attached to Luther's notion developed by Calvin that there are two foundations, or there's two kingdoms, and the idea is what we do in the kingdom of the world is quite separate from what we do in the kingdom of the church. This was an idea originally posed in, a, I think, a truer fashion by Augustine, but it's developed by Martin Luther and John Calvin in, a, I think, a highly destructive manner. In this understanding, the Christian virtues like love, mercy, forgiveness, these apply simply to individuals, not governments, and not in the decisions that governments or governors, presidents and kings might make. And so this has come about in the news recently with the news of our president's various infidelities and cruelties. Robert Jeffries, a, a Dallas megachurch pastor and advisor to Donald Trump, assured Fox News 
that his behavior in this regard is totally irrelevant to who he is as president. And so Jeffries has consistently deployed the theology of Luther and Calvin when a writer asked him, don't you want the president to embody the Sermon on the Mount? He said, no, absolutely not. And so the focus on individual salvation and by individual also interior, internal to the individual, what you know is in the mind. The focus on primarily going to heaven when you die. The notion that Romans 13 demands unconditional obedience to rulers all operate within the notion that God is operating in multiple spheres with different goals and means. The two kingdoms doctrine, uh, beginning with Luther, has been associated with multiple reigns of terror. Uh, during the Peasants' War of 1524 to 25, the labors, the peasants, partly inspired, largely inspired by Luther himself, rose up uh, against their secular and spiritual overlords. And Luther then writes tracts uh, demanding that they be literally slaughtered. Let everyone who can smite, slay, and stab the peasants, he wrote. It is just as one might must kill a mad dog. If you do not strike him, he will strike you and a whole land with you. And so the peasants were put down in a terrible bloodletting that left more than 100,000 dead. Calvin likewise would appeal to the notion of the two kingdoms in his burning over 70 individuals for the crime of not believing Christian doctrine as he understood it. I think in a, a less evil form, we might trace it clear back to St. Augustine who talked about in the church that you would in some way physically deal with heresy. You would condemn the heretics. This is a part of an understanding that what you do in earth in some way registers differently than in heaven. Killing people, burning people, supporting evil in one kingdom because it does not affect the affairs of the other kingdom, wouldn't we say that this is to build with wood, hay, and stubble? That is, you may have the foundation right, but you're certainly not building on it when you do these sorts of things. Just basic assertions can be laid out here if it is the case that reality is not divided between heaven and earth, body and soul, an earthly kingdom, a, a heavenly kingdom. This is the basis for suggesting that a degraded church in theology will have real-world consequences. That is, what the church does in a particular period in history is perhaps building with wood, hand stubble. It's a futility. And Paul warns this will have consequences, that history matters. If reality is divided, it does not matter. It does not matter what you build on the foundation of the world, even the idea that one correct course is already defeated, because why would it matter what you do? So what is done in the earthly realm, in history, in the body, does not matter in one understanding and certainly does in another understanding. So in the two-kingdom notion, what matters is what you do inwardly. You know, this is the idea that faith is completely devoid of action or activity. It's, thought, it's a thought. 
it pertains to the invisible realm. And what is presumed in believing in Christ, believing that Christ is the singular foundation, I believe this, uh, and this is I, what Paul is arguing for, is that the church is the kingdom. He's b building historically that it's unfolding and it has profound implications. History is real for Christians. And so moral theological progress as well as setbacks can be gauged both corporately, the church as a whole can advance, and individually, that each of us as individuals can make progress or uh, decline. Or, you know, we can be living a futility. In addition, then, the corporate body, the church, is a historical reality, and so it will benefit from individual failures and successes as these contribute to the church as a whole. And we can say that progress can be made in the church universal, theologically as well as morally, and not in some mechanical or automatic sense, but often as a result of maybe the harsh reality of individual lives. So the disaster of this two-kingdom notion is illustrated, I think, and I'd like to tell the story then of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller, who are perhaps the most famous German Christians in the wartime and pre-war period. If we follow them, and both of them contributed significantly to the, the German church being saved from the complete bigotry of Adolf Hitler in that period, I think without their contribution that we might say that the church would have been practically non-existent. When Paul describes what we are building as being completely consumed by fire, I believe that that was what we saw and perhaps what we see now as the church is made ineffective in combating real-world evil. So both of them rendered invaluable service. Niemöller as the head and the founding member of the Confessing Church, and Bonhoeffer as a young theologian and teacher in this church. But they make for an interesting contrast in their experience. The groundwork of Bonhoeffer's uh, theological understanding was laid in his Ph.D. dissertation, in which he argues that the Holy Spirit is, first of all, a social spirit. And what he means by this is that man is always, humans are always, who they are in community. That in the community of the church, it is the sanctified community, is his title here, that there is a new birth, a new sort of humanity unfolding through the historical communion of the church. And so he's saying we are formed as new creatures in Christ only in the historical community of the church. This is not a mystical, heavenly, invisible community, but the actual presence of God. He has a phrase, Christ existing in church community. He will also talk about a continued incarnation of Christ in which the person of God opens his self-communion to the world through this community, through the body of Christ. To state it succinctly, we're saved through this community, and where the community fails, where the church is ineffective, salvation is in fact ineffective. Now, Niemöller was a very different individual. He had fought in World War I. He was a 
U-boat commander, army or uh, military officer, war veteran, and he had very little time for this sort of abstract theological reflection. Until, that is, he spent a long period in prison, arrested under, under Hitler. What Bonhoeffer had ascertained from the beginning of his journey, that is that the progress of the church will depend upon the real-world defeat of German nationalism, that Bonhoeffer is going to say for Christianity to succeed and for me to succeed as a Christian will mean that Germany as a nation is defeated. This was an insight that Niemöller would only come to very late in life and, and well after the war. As any good Luther, Niemöller was thoroughly absorbed in the notion of Luther's two kingdoms. And with this understanding, he voted two times for Hitler. He had a private meeting in, in which the Fuhrer assured him he would not commit pogroms against the Jews. And he bent over backwards in attempting to accommodate Hitler because, like the majority of German Christians, he saw Hitler as in some way a religious answer. And I think this is important. That is that he preferred the, the religion of Hitler to the irreligion of communism and could not see then because of Hitler's usage of, he would use Christian phrases and would appeal to the Bible and appeal to his own Christianity, that in some way that gave assurance to Niemöller. And so his reaction to Hitler really only came when he saw the Fuhrer overreaching the realm of his authority, that is, that in a two-kingdom system, and Hitler himself had bought into a two-kingdom system, the secular authorities should not interfere with the church. And, of course, that's precisely what Hitler began to do, was to uh, dictate then to the church. In the Arian paragraph, he set forth excluding Jews from holding public office, and this would have included offices in the church. They could not have become, been clergy. And so Niemöller provided resistance to the Nazi interference in the church. But even then, and he himself tells this story after the war, he did not directly oppose persecution of the Jews. Now, he would spend the end of his life repenting of this failure and describing how this failure uh, unfolded. Part of it, he says, that it was his German sensibility. He was a German nationalist, and he held that Jews, because of their Jewishness and their unwillingness to give up their Jewishness, had brought on their own persecution. This is part of the problem, I think, not just with German nationalism, but with any sort of nationalist, modern nationalism that Jews are often scapegoated in this understanding. This is, UNESCO even identifies this as part of nationalism, that a virulent form of anti-Semitism arises because just as the Jews are always seen as giving primary allegiance to God, then it's presumed they cannot give primary allegiance to the state, which of course is precisely the position that Christians should be in, but a failed Christianity again and again has been willing to lend primary allegiance to the Fuhrer, the president, or the head of the state, and this is 
I think, a direct contradiction to saying Christ is Lord, that we give primary allegiance to Christ. So Niemöller, even as early as 1937, in a sermon, he says, what is the reason for the Jews' obvious punishment, which has lasted for thousands of years? Dear brethren, the reason, he says, is easily given. The Jews brought the Christ of of God to the cross. He's saying they're the, you know, they're the Christ killers, and therefore he's promoting anti-Semitism. And this explains, in his own explanation, partly why he supported Hitler. <laughs> now, he would eventually repudiate this. He would embrace a full pacifism. But this was long after, and he himself says this, it was long after he might have drawn a firmer line in delim- delimiting the reach of Hitler. And this is the poem, you know, that this is the occasion for which he wrote the poem, for which he is most widely known. Many people know the poem. They may not know the author. But it is a lament of his failure to grasp that as Christians, our love of neighbor, our real world labor for others, what we do for others is the point of our faith. And so his poem goes, first they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. In a 1976 explanation of the intellectual failure, the theological failure behind this poem, he explained that he thought the church did not and should not become a point of political resistance, but should only concern itself with what was happening internally. That is, he did not see the need to resist Hitler, but only inside the church rather than in the secular realm. And so in his two kingdom understandings, we might say his two found, foundation misunderstanding, the, the, uh, as Paul puts it, that we are all ministers of reconciliation for the world. That is, the wor- real world reconciliation is taking place in Christ. And so Bonhoeffer nurtured, I believe, in a very different atmosphere, is, gives us a very different look in, uh, in realms of this, in that he seemed to never harbor delusions as to the evil of Hitler. For a young man, he seemed to have insights that his older contemporaries lacked, that he spoke out against Hitler two days after Hitler became chancellor in a radio broadcast, which was the station was mysteriously shut down in the midst of the broadcast. And then in his attempt to get the church to resist persecution of the Jews, where Niemöller wanted to help Jewish clergy who had converted to Christianity, Bonhoeffer said, no, we have to identify with the Jews. In an effort to stop the Nazification of the church, he even proposed a ban on all pastoral services. And even Karl Barth considered this too radical and was it was voted down. Maybe we can't say why Bonhoeffer was able to receive to perceive the reality of the situation long before Niemöller, but certainly it must have been attached to his understanding that the the church is not a secondary reality, but is the primary means 
to salvation being worked out in a present tense historical context. So to be a Christian means we live out and support the kingdom of God as a first order reality and not subservient in any way to another kingdom or to a parallel kingdom. So for Bonhoeffer to be a Christian in Germany in 1939 and for the word Christian to have any meaning, it became clear to him that he had to participate in the defeat of his own nation. He could not be a loyal citizen of the earthly kingdom and maintain citizenship in the heavenly kingdom, as if these were separate. And so the resounding consequence of Bonhoeffer's rejecting Luther's notion of the two kingdoms, I believe, comes out in his writing the cost of discipleship. That is, that a costly discipleship entails a corporate embodied spirituality, a real living out of the Sermon on the Mount, which the book is an exegetical explanation of. So this meant for Bonhoeffer suffering together with his German brothers and sisters. In the Bonhoeffer's life, he had two opportunities to escape martyrdom, which it eventually uh, come his way. Early on, he could have stayed in a pastorate that he had in London, during which, interestingly enough, Karl Barth writes to him and says that you're abandoning the church in the midst of its burning, and Bonhoeffer returns. And the second, when he was invited to Union Theological Seminary, and as soon as he got there, he uh, began to regret it, and he would in turn to Germany, in spite of the urging of his friends to stay in America because they saw what, and he saw that this would perhaps mean his death. And so he takes the last ship crossing the Atlantic before the outbreak of the war. In a letter that he writes back to uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, Bonhoeffer explains, I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. In this letter, then, the correlate is clear. The church could not be the church if German nationalism should prevail in the church. And this understanding perhaps explains the links to which Bonhoeffer would go. You know, on his return, that he would enter into the Abvar, the secret service, as a double agent in an attempt to bring about the downfall politically of Hitler. And he would aid in the escape of Jews from Germany and apparently participated in the plot to assassinate Hitler. There's been some dispute about this. But even as early as 1932, he said in a sermon about martyrdom and about the price that may be paid. He says, the blood of martyrs might once again be demanded. But this blood, if we really have the courage and loyalty to shed it, will not be innocent. 
shining like that of the first witnesses for the faith. On our blood lies heavy guilt, the guilt of the unprofitable servant who is cast into outer darkness. Though he had embraced pacifism in this quote uh, by the time he had written this, maybe this reflects that even then his willingness to count himself accursed, you know, that he's uh, referencing Paul here who says that on behalf of his people he would be accursed. And maybe this already includes his willingness to abandon his pacifism to assassinate Hitler. So it may have arisen from the sense that the church in Germany had failed to be the church. Though he seems to have foreseen his martyrdom, he would not commit himself or count himself, rather, to uh, as a true martyr. Due to the blood guilt, he said, due to the blood guilt he felt even in 1932. So what Bonhoeffer could see but which escaped Niemöller, was that God could not be said to be working in two separate spheres. Niemöller instinctively based his notion of, of truth on German culture, on insights he gained from being a German Christian. And he pictured Christian peace as of another realm, not concerned with this real world notion of peace. And so after the war, again, he would repudiate this, He would uh, and it would urge the confession of guilt on the part of German Christians. He felt the church, like Bonhoeffer, had failed. It had failed to be the church. It had failed to oppose the Nazis, the Third Reich, and had so, because of this, contributed to the rise of a terribly monstrous evil. And so at his urging, Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt spells out the church's guilt. It says, Through us, infinite wrong was brought over many people and countries. It's my hope here that I will never be put in the position of repenting like Niemöller for the work I've done in and for the church. But it seems we're in a historical moment that is, in some ways at least, theologically similar to that in Nazi Germany. The same doctrine, representative of a failure of theological thought, the doctrine which ushered Hitler into office, is offered up by evangelicals in justification of support, a government engaging in evil, even in their own estimation. They say government is for the purpose of imposing authority, and whether it entails the slaughter of peasants and Jews, as at the time of Luther and the Germans, or the oppression and maltreatment of immigrants and their children at our own borders. Under this understanding, the church, as an unrepentant Niemöller thought, is not to offer a voice of resistance. I think that's exactly wrong. Evil is always evil. It's never justified. And as Christians, we cannot build effectively on the one foundation, which is Christ, without repudiating the notion that what we do in an earthly church is unconnected to the heavenly city. This is a strange part of all of this, that even you know, the church in Luther's picture is at the left hand of God, the earthly hand, and has no connection to the heavenly city. I think the city of God, established by Christ, the new Jerusalem, which is pictured as coming down in Revelation, 
is the church. It is in this sense that Jesus says the work that we do, redemptive work of the church is greater than that even that uh, he has done. What he means is that the redemption of his body is the in continuing incarnate body of the church. The verse, interestingly, and I'll use this as a kind of conclusion that Paul is building on, the messianic passage from the Old Testament, is Isaiah 28. And this, then, is the passage that's repeated in many places in the New Testament that makes reference, then, to the holy city the city of God, the you know allusion to the people of God. I believe it's an allusion to the church. It's a picturing of Christ as the foundation of this church. But in the Isaiah 28 passage, the choice is very clear between two kinds of foundation, two kinds of covenant, between a covenant and civilization built on death or life. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. I believe this depicts the reality behind the false foundation we might build on. It depicts, Paul calls, this nullity and nothing which we imagine is an ultimate or absolute something. The principalities and powers, the wisdom of this world. Now the messianic passage comes right after this. Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be put to shame, will not be disturbed. There are the stark choices that I think Paul is laying out in Corinthians and Romans, that it is a choice of building on a true foundation or the choice of building upon a nullity. It is a choice of building even on this true foundation then with gold or silver or wood, hay of stubble, that is that we can miss the foundation or how to build upon it if we do not understand the character of what it is that we are doing. We are engaged in the work of eternity, the reconciliation of the world, Paul says, the redemption of all things. Paul warns, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Temple, of course, here, referring back to the temple of the Jews of cosmic importance. If any man destroys the temple, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.